you ever remember playing that game of hide-and-seek when you were a kid? And the idea was that the person who was going to try and find you would go away and count up to 100 or something um, with their eyes closed, and you'd hide. And eventually, when they got to 100, they were supposed to shout, coming, ready or not. And at that point, if you were well hidden in a cupboard somewhere or under the table, that was fine. If you were still dithering, then you knew that the game was up because any second now that kid would come running around the corner and you, you were got. And it was that idea of coming, ready or not, that's been going through my mind ever since I was given this invitation to think about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly coming whether we're ready for him or whether we're not. And I just want to look at it today under three uh, headings. First of all, to look at the promise in the Bible, in the Old Testament, of the coming of the Lord, very briefly. And then to look at the Lord's own words himself and what the New Testament tells us, very briefly. And then to go into 1 Thessalonians and just look at what it says for practical purposes for us. Because like our previous um, topic, if it's all head knowledge, it does us no good. But if we do, if we get something practical out of it, then it will be something that can be used for the blessing of God. Remember the Lord Jesus when he was, uh, after his resurrection, but before the disciples realized he'd been raised, and he was on his way to Emmaus with those, those disciples who had no idea who he was. And we read in Luke chapter 24, he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So there's the Lord Jesus taking what we call the Old Testament and going through it and pointing out to them that the Old Testament was full of things about Jesus, about himself. And so it is. And there's those famous scriptures that we read at Christmas particularly that we often don't really think about. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we read scriptures like that in our Christmas services and everybody smiles and says, lovely scriptures, and they don't think that they were never fulfilled. When did Jesus reign on David's throne? He didn't. And so for those, either the Bible's got it drastically wrong, or he's got to come back in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled. What about Micah 5 verse 2? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. A prediction of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah, but also that this person was going to be a ruler. And in his earthly life, Jesus never was a ruler. He never ruled anything. So he must be coming back again in order 
for those scriptures to be fulfilled. And so in the Old Testament, we have predictions of the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and his return as king. The Lord Jesus himself, he promised to come back. Perhaps the clearest one is in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. In John 14, Jesus is speaking as the groom at a wedding. And in the Jewish wedding scenario, that's exactly what would happen. The man would come to the girl that he'd got his eye on and ask her if she would marry him. And if she said yes, they were entered into marriage in a, a, a ceremony that we call betrothal. They were fully married, but they weren't living together. He would go back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. And then at some future date, when everything was ready, he'd come back and take her to be with himself. And that's what Jesus is saying he's going to do. He's going to, he has, we're one with him. He's claimed us for his own. He's asked us if we'll be his, and we've said yes. He's going away, and he's coming back to take us to be with himself. And then finally, in this introduction bit, do you remember the, de the, the um, ascension into heaven on the Mount of Olives? The very last minute of the life of the Lord Jesus on this earth. And he went to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and we read in Acts chapter 1, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The book of Zechariah tells us that Jesus is coming someday and will stand on the Mount of Olives. Here's Jesus on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and he's going up and into a cloud, and then he's gone. And we're told very specifically that he's coming back in the same way, back to a cloud, and then from the cloud to the Mount of Olives. God's word is very specific, and we can trust it. Now then, let's look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is a very interesting book. It's split into five chapters, although you'll know the five chapter divisions are not part of the original Word of God, they're for our convenience. But it's split into five chapters, and in every one of those five chapters, at the end of the chapters, there's a reference to the coming of the Lord. It's a book that's full of references to the coming of the Lord. Even if you take the chapter divisions out and go back to the original, five times, in that small letter, Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. And it strikes me that in chapter 1, he talks about waiting for his coming. In chapter 2, he talks about triumph at his coming. In chapter 3, he talks about being confident at his coming. In chapter 4, there's the assurance of his coming. And in chapter 5, he talks about being kept for his coming. 
First Thessalonians was probably one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote, and there does seem to be in a bit of a background of the disciples there expecting the return of the Lord at any moment. He was going to come, and maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's next week, and Paul is, is assuring them that he's coming, but also encouraging them to get on with their Christian lives that we've just been hearing about together while they wait. So all my readings are from 1 Thessalonians, so if you want to follow it in your Bibles, the first one is in chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Repentance, service, waiting, the resurrection, and rescue. And they're all part of this overall waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus, so we can learn from what is written here. The first thing he talks about is repentance. You turned from God to idols. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul writes, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate, demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So what is repentance? Sometimes it's rather... Uh, reduce a little bit because we say, well, it's saying sorry. Repentance is a lot more than saying sorry. Repentance involves leading appreciably different lives. Now, for those of us, and many of us are like this, who became Christians, who came to faith when we were children, or as young teenagers, the whole business of repentance can start worrying us because what did we repent of when we were children or young teenagers? And I think it's a good question, but the answer I have is that it's, it's, this, it's this turning from ordinary lives to something appreciably different. Somebody who's saved as an adult, particularly someone who's been living a bad life, their repentance is amazing. Someone like the Apostle Paul, struck down on the road to Damascus, completely turned around, it becomes amazing. But many of us, we don't have that sort of turning, do we? Our lives don't change dramatically, but they do, because your life as a Christian is appreciably different than what it would have been if you'd never come to know the Lord Jesus, and so is mine. And that's the element of repentance, of turning around our lives and pointing them in a different direction. And of course, it's also turning away from sin. And sin comes into our lives all the time. So there's a constant repentance, a constantly saying sorry and being sorry and turning our lives around so that we're facing the way God wants us to. And then he talked about service. We are not saved to go and do our own thing. That's a total misconception. In the Old Testament, remember when Pharaoh had the people in bondage, let my people go, said Moses, that they may serve me. That was his message from God. Not let my people go so they can all go running off in all directions. 
They were to come out to serve God. And Peter talked about serving one another and being eager to serve. We are saved to serve God. And it's exclusive. Jesus said himself, no one can serve two masters. And if we're feet in two camps, we're not going to do anything properly. We're to serve the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 6 says, serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do. Serving one another, serving God. And then, of course, there's the collective issue when we come together as a church and we read, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So we come together and we serve God. We serve as priests. We serve as a priesthood. We serve as a kingdom. And one of the practical ways of that, of course, is the opportunity tomorrow morning when we come together as a church and we enter into the presence of God and we bring him the worship and the praise of our hearts. And we tell him what a wonderful person the Lord Jesus is and what a wonderful God we're serving. And that delights the heart of God. And that's worship. And that's what we're called to do. And then he talks about waiting. What does waiting mean? Well, there's different types of waiting, aren't there? Waiting for a bus. That's dead waiting. <sighs> waiting and waiting and doing nothing while you wait for this wretched thing to come along. But then there's waiting for an important letter to come. You know it's in the post, you know it's coming. An invitation maybe, or a visa to get into some country that you, you're hoping to visit, and it's been approved and you know it's on its way. That's different, isn't it? You don't sit by your door staring at the letterbox. Of course you don't, you get on with your life, but you know it's coming and you're waiting for it. It's in the back of your mind when that letter comes, when, it, when I hear from them, but you're getting on with your life. You're doing things and that's the sort of waiting. It's not waiting at a bus stop. It's the sort of waiting when we know something's coming and we're getting on with our lives. If I tell you that I'll come at three o'clock and take you out somewhere, then of course I'd expect you to be pretty much waiting at three o'clock for me to come. But if I say to you, I'll be back, I'm going away, but I'll be back next month and I'll come round one day and we'll have a, a day together. Now assuming that you want me to spend a day with you, assuming this is something that fills you with some kind of joy, you'd be preparing for that, but in a different way, wouldn't you? You wouldn't be standing by the door for a month. You'd be getting on with your, your everyday life, but in the back of your mind would be this idea, Dave's promised he'll come, and when he comes, we'll spend the day together. So there's some things you wouldn't do. You wouldn't book a holiday and go away. You wouldn't start some really seriously dirty work that's going to completely, that's going to completely spoil uh, your, your life and, and, and make it impossible to spend a day with me. You see, there's different types of waiting. Waiting for the Lord is those second types. It's waiting, getting on with our lives, knowing that something's coming that's been promised and there are some things that you won't do. In fact, Paul spells it out in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright 
and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. There are some things that I have to say no to, and there are some things that you have to say no to. And we know what those sort of things are. And we're living in a world that will bombard those things at you, day in and day out. And as Christians waiting for our master to come back, we have to learn to say no to those things. Ungodly things, worldly passions, and we're to live lives that will be honouring to him. The Thessalonians were living ordinary lives, but they were showing they had great faith and love to one another. They cared for one another. They were a loving church, like Cardiff, a warm church, a church, a welcoming church, a friendly church. They were standing firm. They knew what they believed, and they stuck at it. They believed it, and they trusted it. They were working hard at being Christians. A.W. Tozer wrote that, um, the Christian writer wrote that pamphlet where he says, as Christians, sometimes Christians think of this world as a playground, here to entertain us, to, to have fun in. He said, it's not, it's a battleground. In this world, we're meant to see it as a battleground, not as a playground. If we see it as a playground, somewhere to, some, somewhere to amuse ourselves, or whether we see it as a battleground, somewhere where we're working for the Lord Jesus against the forces of evil. The Thessalonians were accepting God's word and were living it out. They were living holy lives and they were rejoicing as they went along. Am I? Are you? Is your church? And then he mentions the resurrection. You know, the resurrection keeps cropping up again and again and again. Why? Because it's absolutely fundamental to Christianity. If you can prove or, or demonstrate that in all probability the resurrection didn't take place, Christianity as we know it comes crashing down. It depends on Jesus Christ dying and coming back to life again. And if he did, then everything he said makes sense. Everything he's promised falls into place. Keep hold of the resurrection. And don't keep it for Easter Sunday. Keep it for week in and week out. Rejoice in it. Thank God that Jesus is alive. And they were rejoicing in that. We are resurrection people. We're living on the other side of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And the Bible says because he was raised, we will be raised. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees our own resurrection. And then he talks about rescue, that he's rescued us. Rescue is a big subject, isn't it? Encompasses redemption, the payment of a price. It encompasses getting us out of a mess, rescuing somebody who's fallen into a canal or rescuing somebody who's fallen down a hole, getting them out of the mess. It, it involves removing God's justified anger. God is angry with me, he's angry with you, he's, and he's justified in his anger because I've done things to make him angry. I am a, a somebody that makes him angry. And the rescue is taking that anger away, removing that anger, and rescues us from the coming wrath. The Bible tells us a day coming when God is going to show his total displeasure with this world and with sin and with wickedness. And boy, we will be in deep trouble and we've been rescued from that. Do you ever thank God for that? That when God is, unleashes his anger against sin on this world, it's not going to be against you because of what Jesus did. 
Let's move on to chapter 2. Our reading in chapter 2 is in verse, verses 17 to 20. But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed you are our glory and crown. So in chapter 2, he talks about triumph at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He talks about our hope, our joy, and our crown. And Paul is saying, when the Lord Jesus comes, you Thessalonians are part of my crown, my joy, my hope. And the crown here isn't the crown that you see on our coins on the Queen's head. This is the victor's wreath in the, in the games, someone who'd won something, achieved something, the winner's medal, as we might say in today's language. The Amplified Bible says, For what is our hope or happiness or our victor's wreath of exultant triumph when we stand in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? What would make you happy when you stand before the Lord Jesus? What would you like to have to show off in the, in the best possible way? What would be a good thing to be happening when he comes? Well, the first thing, of course, would be a well done, wouldn't it? Imagine the Lord Jesus saying to me, well done. Imagine the Lord Jesus saying to you, well done. Luke 12, 25 to 37 says, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. From that story, as Christians, we're meant to be on the job, aren't we? Those servants who were waiting for their master to come from his wedding banquet, it might have been three o'clock in the morning when he turned up, but they were on the, on the job. That was their duty, to keep the house secure and let him in when he came, and they were doing that. And keeping things going, keeping the fire going, keeping the house warm, keeping the lights lit, so that when he comes back, he comes back to a, something good. And doing things he'd be happy with. So when he walks through the door, he doesn't say, what are you doing? But he accepts that what they're doing is proper and right. And expecting him back. They're not, they haven't said, oh, he's never going to come back. We can just put our feet up and, and get on with our own lives. Expecting him back. So what particularly ought we to be doing. In churches of God, serving the Lord Jesus and waiting for him, how about some practical examples? Find out what's going on in your church and join in if you can. Is there something going on that you could be part of? Think about someone who's lonely and pay them a visit. Choose four or five people from your church and commit to praying regularly for them. That'd be great, wouldn't it? You don't, you don't even have to tell them. Just choose four or five people out of your church and every day pray for them. That will make a difference to your church. Be absolutely 100% committed to what God has brought you into. Now we know what 100% commitment looks like. 
if there's something you're really keen on, if there's something you're really, really into, you know what it's like. You think about it all the time. You do things for it. You spend money on it. You put yourself out for it. That's how we should be with the kingdom of God, with the churches of God, with our Christian lives. It should, we should be there. It should be part and parcel of our everyday lives. The adversary will do all he can to stop you being involved. You know that, of course. He'll say, you're entitled to your own space. Don't be worrying about going out tonight. You shouldn't have to go out, want, uh, out again once you come in from work. Put your feet up. You're, in, you're entitled to a bit of rest. He'll say, let someone else do it. They're probably better at it than you anyway. He'll say, go away for the weekend enjoy, and enjoy yourself. Don't get tied down with this church business. And he'll say, it's not worthwhile praying. Nothing's going to change, so don't even, don't even bother. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the adversary says to all of us all the time? We thought about the screw tape letters, the adversary writing back, telling, don't do it, don't get involved. And yet, we're meant to be triumphant at the coming of our Lord Jesus. So what is there? Is there somebody you witness to who will be there with you? Wouldn't that be fantastic? When we're there in the presence of God and there's somebody there that you told them about the Lord Jesus and they're there standing with you. Is there somebody you showed hospitality to who eventually came to know the Lord Jesus and to serve him in his house? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Is there somebody you had a real burden to pray for and they came through some difficulty in their lives? Someone whose Christian life is hanging by a thread and you prayed for them and they came through and they served the Lord. Is there somebody you patiently taught the things of God to and now they're teaching others? Triumph at his coming. When the Lord Jesus comes, there should be something positive for us to look forward to. The third thing is confident at his coming. And this is chapter 3. And our reading is verses 12 to 13. Chapter 3, verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. How do you feel about the prospect of the Lord coming and you meeting him and having to give account of your life? It worries me. It's one of the areas that I, I worry about. It concerns me because I think, hmm, oops. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 we read, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That is not judgment for telling off. That is not judgment to see whether you get into heaven or not. As Christians who have the Lord Jesus as our Saviour, we are guaranteed to be with the Lord forever. So don't worry about that. This is judgment on your life and mine. The Lord Jesus looking at my life, looking at your life, and seeing what there is he can commend us for. Is there anything in your life that the Lord Jesus can say, well done about? Is there anything in my life that the Lord Jesus can say, well done about? And Paul went on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. 
but each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul uses different metaphors here. And the first one is of building on a foundation. And there's only one foundation. And if we're not building on Jesus Christ, then we're not Christians. And we don't even come into this. So as believers in the Lord Jesus, we're building on that foundation. And everything you do and everything I do day by day in our lives is building on this foundation. We're building and building and building. The question is, what materials are we using? Are we building with rubbish? Because if it is, then that rubbish will disappear. Are we building with good things? If it is, those good things will stay. And it's like building, and then what we build is going to get touched. And what's left? And the wood and the hay and the straw just goes up in flames. The rubbish in my life, the days when I please myself, the days when I couldn't be bothered. But the other things, the days when I please the Lord, the days when I did something for him, are the, are the things that will remain. Well done. I was proud of you. You just kept on going. Thank you. Imagine the Lord Jesus saying that to you and to me. Let us make it our aim in the time that we have left, because the Lord Jesus is coming, whether we're ready or not. Let's make it our aim in the time that's left to us to build those things that will stand the scrutiny of our Lord Jesus. Chapter 4 is the assurance of his coming. And my reading is in verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encouragement and hope. He encourages them by saying, our grief is less. He doesn't say our grief is non-existent. You know what it's like and I know what it's like when we lose someone we love. Of course we grieve, but we don't grieve like people who have no hope. People who who don't know whether they'll ever see their loved one again, who don't know what's happened to them. We do know and we can take encouragement from that. And again, he talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the key to everything. Because Jesus died and rose again, then he says, all this comes. If Jesus didn't die and rise, then all of this is just pie in the sky. But because Jesus died and rose, we believe that these things are true and going to happen. 
Jesus died. He paid the penalty for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He's given us life and where he lives forevermore. And he's promised to come back and he's promised to take us to be with him. Brothers and sisters, we are heading for glory. Let's live as though we're heading for glory. Let's live as though we believe that we're heading for glory. And then there's hope. This life is not all there is. When you get to my time of life, you're pretty glad that this life isn't all there is. Because if it is, then the best is gone. I'm heading into the older years. But it isn't, of course. This life isn't all there is. This is only really a tiny, tiny fragment of what is going to be eternity. This sad old world is not going to self-destruct. We have people today on the media who are concerned about this planet. Rightly so. It's, we've messed it up big time, haven't we? When I was a boy, they were concerned about nuclear weapons blowing the planet to pieces. And Christians, when I was a boy, had the same confidence that we have today. That although these things are bad things, they're not going to destroy the world. Because God has promised a future for this world. And we are going to be with the Lord whatever happens. So we have hope. We have something to rely on. And Paul is concerned that they may not be properly informed. I think they were concerned because we had a church and look, such and such a person's died. I thought the Lord was supposed to be coming back. I thought we were all going to be with the Lord. and oh, It's all fallen apart. They've died and what's happening now? Paul writes, he says, don't worry. They're still safe. They're not going to get any less of the Lord than you who are still alive. And he points out that there are two types of believer. And there's always going to be two types of believer through this age. Those who have died in Christ and those who remain at his coming. And those who have died in Christ are absolutely safe. And those who remain at his coming are absolutely safe. And together, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know whether I'm going to be still here when the Lord comes. I hope so. I'd like it to be so, but I don't know, and neither do you. But one thing I do know, that I'm not going to miss out either way, because Paul assures us in this passage. And just because we can't fully understand it, and there's lots of things about the coming of the Lord that we don't fully understand, don't let it destroy your anticipation. C.S. Lewis, who's already been quoted today, said, We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. Isn't that right? There's things that are just so beyond us, we can't imagine them, so let's settle for here and now. Let's make the most of this life because this afterlife, we just don't understand. But God has promised that this life that we're going to go to when the Lord Jesus comes is out of this world in more ways than one, is absolutely wonderful. I was reading this recently. He says, Quite a few years ago, I was part of my church's music group. We were rehearsing one Thursday evening for the Sunday morning service. It was a good bunch of songs. We knew them well, and we were enjoying praising God together. Then the lead singer said something that has stuck with me ever since. This is one of those evenings when you really hope Jesus won't return just yet. I'm having such a lovely time. To be honest, I knew something was odd about what she said, but as a relatively new Christian, I couldn't put my finger on what it was straight away. But it's come to mind more than a handful of times since then. And a while ago, I finally twigged what, it, what, what was so strange about her statement. In our songs, we were literally praising Jesus. 
singing of our love for him and affirming his goodness. Surely the pinnacle of the evening would have been his return. I guess we can easily be so caught up in the moment that we lose sight of the big picture. Are we waiting in the expectation of something far greater than anything this life can offer? Sometimes we, we, lose, we lose our sense of it and we start to think of this life as being the greatest, this, the greatest thing we can experience. Someday, God will directly intervene in this world, a real out-of-this-world experience. And the question for you and for me is, does this excite us? And my final one is in chapter 5, and it's verses 23 to 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Sanctified means made holy or pure. We are both fully sanctified and trying to be sanctified at one and the same time. You know what I'm saying there, don't you? In Christ, we are completely pure. In our everyday lives, we are struggling with purity to, to make ourselves holy, to get rid of the rubbish out of our lives, to be what the Lord wants us to be. It will be a total disaster for me if my whole body, soul and spirit is not kept for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are we in this for a good finish? Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared something for you and something for me to do. The Lord Jesus told his disciples to count the cost and to be sure. He doesn't want disciples who jump in without giving any thought, then find it a bit tough, and then pack up and go away. That's no good. He doesn't want that. Peter writes, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Could we be asleep on the job? We already had a reference to the seven churches in Asia. What about the church in Sardis? Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. The church in Sardis, they'd fallen asleep on the job. And the question, the answer was, wake up. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded says the writers of the Hebrews. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. God doesn't want people to sign up and then pack up and go away. You won't do that, will you? I mustn't do that. We mustn't pack up and go away. We mustn't turn away from disciple path that the Lord has put us on. So we're created to do good works. We're to count the cost, profit and, profit and loss. And there's always profit in serving the Lord. We're to make every effort, according to Peter. We're to wake up like Sardis. 
and we're not to throw away our confidence like Hebrews. So we've thought about the five things, haven't we? We've thought about waiting for his coming, the triumph at his coming, being confident at his coming, the assurance of his coming, and being kept for his coming. May God bless each one of us and help us to be like that, to be people who are genuinely waiting for our Lord Jesus to come and who will be kept and will be found pleasing him and to whom he will say, well done, when he comes. I'd like us to sing one verse of a hymn, and it's not in your hymn book, but it's going to appear on the screen. And it's the last verse of How Great Thou Art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then shall I bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Can we just stay seated and sing that one verse and the chorus?